faithfulness. It's um, a love that is loyal and merciful and kind and sort of comes out strongest when it's being poured out to people who are particularly vulnerable or weak. It, it's love in action. So it's not like a fleeting romance or a strong sort of urge or sexual desire or something like that. It's not a feeling. It is love in action. It is long love. And some of us as well may have had an encounter with a love where it hasn't lasted, where it's a love that has ended up abandoning us or um, it, it hasn't endured. And so in these times, it's, it's so good to receive again the hesed of God, the loving kindness of God, because it is faithful and it lasts. So I'm going to read over you um, a couple of verses just to receive again the hesed of God. And here it is. So Psalm, all through the Psalms as well, it's the same word that often comes up when they talk about the loving kindness of God. So here's a few verses from the Psalms. It says, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. You are abundant in loving kindness to all who call on you. You, Lord, are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. And lastly, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So Lord, as we gather to worship together now, we just wanna be held in that place between your loving kindness and your faithfulness. And Lord, we bless you and praise you. It brings joy to us that you hold us secure in that place. And we receive again your loving kindness. We thank you that that is who you are, that your love endures, that your love lasts, that your love is faithful. Amen. Chapter three. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. 
and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she answered. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother, nor empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Uh, well, thank you, Paul, so much for reading that. Um, you might want to get a Bible. If you can quickly grab a Bible, it will help you as we look at this chapter together. But what a story this is. I don't know if you can fully appreciate it, but um, this is two and a half thousand years old, this story. And yet it is still incredibly sort of thrilling and um the suspense of a brilliant story is there. It has some brilliant plot twists in it. And it is full of this particular chapter is full of danger and intrigue. And if you noticed it, it ends on a classic cliffhanger. And the chapter divides really easily into three scenes. And uh, the first runs from one to five in chapter three. And you get this scene with Naomi and Ruth, basically Naomi in particular, hatching a plan. Then if you look on verses six to 15, the scene changes to Boaz and Ruth. And this is sort of up close and personal down on the threshing floor. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. And then the third scene switches again back to Ruth and Naomi having a bit of a debrief about how that plan has gone. So I hope you can see those three scenes in the chapter. And it strikes me, first of all, that scene one and scene three contrast one with another. So in the first one, you get Naomi um, calling, like, calling on Ruth 
to be proactive, to take the initiative. And then in the third scene, it has completely re reversed and Naomi is calling on Ruth to do nothing, to wait now as the action, if you like, has passed forward to Boaz in the final um, chapter of the book. And I don't know, I hope I don't need to spell it out, but here what Naomi is doing is, is certainly verging on something uh, that could tip over into manipulation or even seduction. And we have to bear in mind that in the culture, these two women are coming into this story with no power at all, no voice in the culture. Um, and so what they do do is they use the power they do have to the maximum to um, get something to happen. They, they take the initiative and Ruth at the very least, we can see this is a sort of shrewd plan. This is an ingenious plan that Naomi is concocting. And then at the very end of the chapter, it's the opposite. She says, Naomi says, do nothing, wait now, let others take the initiative, let others be proactive. And even this is fascinating for us as we zoom out of this story and then have a think about your own story. I wonder if there are times when we, we, we feel we need to be proactive, we need to make something happen. And that is of God, that is what God is, is wanting of us and calling us to do. And it's just asking that question of when that can tip over into something that is manipulating or controlling. And at the other extreme, if you feel sometimes there are seasons of waiting when you are supposed to be actively waiting, and that is something that God is calling you into, there's that thing where it can tip over, isn't there, into an apathy and a complacency and a passivity that isn't what God wants. So I wonder if we're aware of those seasons in our lives and just aware of the dangers of it tipping over away from the plan of God um, into some of the, that other stuff. So that's one challenge for us to think about. But the challenge number two that comes out of this story is that we see these two women um, doing what they can do. There are many, many things that they cannot do, but they do what they can do. And it strikes me that this story leaves us with no option to say, oh, my life's too ordinary. I'm a nobody. My life's insignificant. There's no way that God could want to catch me up in his plans. Because Ruth and Naomi are in this story, not as people of power or of position, but as people who come with very little and on the very edges of, of um of them, the society as outsiders, and yet God catches them up in extraordinary ways into his plans and purposes, actually in the ordinariness and, and of their lives. So there's a lie there really that we begin to believe that is that, that would be that our life is too insignificant to matter, that God can't catch us up in his amazing plans because our life's too ordinary we're a no one who are we and the other lie that we can buy into is that our life is too chaotic and again this fantastic story just wipes that off the table um <laughs> you know you might feel that your life is in chaos but these women come into the story 
with nothing. Everything they had has gone. They have lost everything and their life has been shattered. And yet it is sort of in that chaos that God gets to work in extraordinary ways. So that's challenge number number two for us today. God is at work in the ordinariness of our lives and he's at work in the chaos. But having looked a little bit at the first bit and the last bit of that chapter, I just want to push us right into the middle of the chapter where um, Boaz and Ruth um, take, take the stage, if you like. What is happening there in the middle of that chapter? And what I would like to suggest is that Ruth and Boaz absolutely exemplify this hesed that we were talking about earlier, this loving kindness, this love that reaches beyond what you might need um, to empower and lift up, especially people who are weaker or more vulnerable than you. That is the nature of hesed, the loving kindness um, that God shows to us. But also, I think Ruth and Boaz are being lifted up as, as brilliant examples of this hesed. Um, why do I say that? Why do I think Ruth excels in hesed? I say that because in this chapter, she goes down to the threshing floor and the threshing floor was somewhere, somewhere where really it was a men only zone. It was where you brought in the harvest and um, there would be a great celebration, great feasting and drinking. And during the day, they would be doing this winnowing where the grain gets thrown up in the air and the lighter chaff and the stalks get blown away and the, and the grain itself falls down heavier and sort of they build up this pile of grain. And then at night, the men would sleep there so that it didn't get stolen. Um, and the own, it, it was known, the threshing floor was known as, as a place um, what, where sex, illicit sexual encounters would take place. If you were snoozing on your sofa just then, that might have woken you up. Um, so Ruth um, sh shows herself willing to um, take a risk. There's a danger here for her, and she is certainly risking her reputation to appear at night on the threshing floor. And what she does is fearless and bold. It certainly risks her reputation. But what is very interesting in the detail of the story is that Naomi has laid out this plan in great detail. And in verse nine, we can see that Ruth actually deviates from Naomi's plan because Naomi said to her, um, come in, lift, you know, lift Boaz's, um, you know, cover his cloak and just lie down on his feet and he will tell you what to do. Now, we don't know, but it's certainly in the reader's mind is opening up the possibility of a, of a sex scene, frankly. Um, whereas what actually happens is that instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do when he wakes up startled and finds this woman lying at his feet, um, she actually then chung, comes straight in with a proposal to him. And she says, I am Ruth, I am your maidservant, and you need to do the right thing. I am asking you to take me and my mother-in-law into your household, to take us under your covering, to protect us, and um, uh, do your duty as a kinsman redeemer. So um, she takes the initiative again here, and um, 
what we see is that Boaz recognizes this as hesed. He says to her, I think it's verse 10, he says to her, you are incredible. This is even more hesed. This is an even greater kindness than the kindness you showed to your mother-in-law before by loyally traveling this journey with her and coming to a foreign place with her. Because you have um, chosen me, Boaz, rather than some of the younger men. Um, so you haven't taken just what you could get, but you've done the right thing. You've acted out of this loving kindness on for the sake of your mother-in-law. So Boaz is absolutely thrilled by this woman um, because of the hesed that um, she shows in the way she is willing to take these risks for the sake of keeping Naomi um, safe and looked after into the future. So he also then excels in hesed. And, and, and I think this is because the scene, it makes a big thing of this being at night on the threshing floor. Two things could have happened when Boaz wakes up and finds this young, beautiful, this woman who's smelling fantastic. Um, he finds this woman lying at his feet. Two things could have happened. One, he could have shamed her in front of everyone because she, if she was a woman of rep repute, she shouldn't have been there. Alternatively, frankly, he could have taken advantage of her. And, and um, yeah, this could have been one of those moments where an illicit sexual encounter took place on the threshing floor. And in a way, many things about the way the scene is set up makes the reader really know that this is a real possibility. But in fact, instead of doing one of those two things, Boaz, you can see, he does neither of those things. He doesn't shame her. In fact, he protects her during the rest of the night and he doesn't take advantage of her. But what he does do is promise that he will do everything in his power to keep her safe and to give her and Naomi a future. And he, you can see, is absolutely delighted um, to be able to meet their need. He is delighted to use his power and position to alleviate their distress and their vulnerability. And that is exactly what Hesed looks like. And you can see as well in the way he generously provides for her, that he fills her shawl with this grain to take back to Naomi. And he, and he promises that all will be well if they will kind of wait and, and trust him. So both of these two, Boaz and Ruth, I think, have had this opportunity to just take, take something for themselves. And actually both of them choose something better. So as we um, have a chat about this chapter, and we'll go into groups to, to do that, I wanted to ask you a question, and that is, in those times in your life where you do know that you're called into proactivity, you, you're supposed to take the initiative, you're supposed to make something happen, the challenge about hesed is that you do that in the container of loving kindness, so that you don't get something done but leave a trail of casualties you 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 are proactive and you take the initiative you make something happen but you don't drive drive through so hard that the weak and the vulnerable around you are left crushed 
And the opposite is also true, that when you're in a season of your life where you frankly don't know what God wants you to do, and you have no real sense of calling and focus and purpose in, in terms of specifics, I think we're being encouraged to do, to do the same thing, to make sure we live our lives out of this container of hesed, where we are merciful and kind and loyal and upright. Um, and, and our love for people is enduring and our love for people increases as their vulnerability or need um, increases. That's what Hesed looks like. So I guess whatever season of life we're in, it, in terms of whether we're being called to get on and do something, make something happen, or whether we are being called to actively wait and let others um, get on and do something, both of those are an invitation into hesed, into the way, the way we live our life. And if you live in the container of hesed, I believe it kind of attracts the plans and purposes of God. And that just as we see in the story of Ruth, it, it sort of enables God to magnify hugely um, his plans and purposes in and through our lives, regardless of whether we see ourselves as a hugely significant in the world and regardless of how many things in our, in our lives are in chaos. So I hope that has made enough sense to you. Um, have a chat in these rooms. You can talk about anything that struck you from that chapter, but also I'll give you two questions in case that's a, a help. The first question is, do you recognize a time in your story, in your life, when you have been proactive or a time when you have actively waited and have you seen how God has worked through that? And the second question is, do you sometimes think that your life is too significant or too chaotic for, um, for, for God to work in and, in and through you? Yeah, do you ever think that your life is so insignificant or so chaotic that God can't involve you in his plans until things change? So those are my two questions.